0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. It has been ranked as the greatest boxing match of the 20th century. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought for the third time on October the 1st, 1975, in the Philippines. Their first match was in New York City in 1971 in Madison Square Garden. At that time, it was the most watched world sports event in world history. Joe Frazier won that fight. Three years later, 1974, the two men fought again. Muhammad Ali fought or won that one in New York City. And then about a year, year and a half later, 1975, the, the two men fought again. Ali had won one. Frazier had won one. And now they met in the Philippines in an arena of 25,000 people at a sweltering 110 degrees And there was one question that rematch was to answer. Who was the greatest? Back in the 1960s, Ali had already said he was the greatest. And this was Frazier's moment to prove he was the greatest. So it was a showdown. Who was going to be the greatest? Now, this was more than a fight. This was really personal for these men. Back in the 1960s, Frazier or Ali was at the top of his game. But all of a sudden, his boxing license and World Heavyweight Championships was stripped away from him. In the meantime, Joe Frazier rose to prominence, and Frazier actually tried to help Ali and get him back involved in boxing, even loaned him money, and Ali resented the fact that Frazier had taken his place. So these men were bitter rivals. They criticized each other in public, and they were there in the Philippines, October the 1st, to prove that each one was the greatest. It was a showdown. So there they were. And there were also 1 billion people watching on television. It was a showdown. But years earlier, there was another showdown, not in Manila, but on Mount Carmel. And that day on Mount Carmel, the two players were not Ali and Frazier. It was Ahab and Elijah. And it was a showdown to determine who was the greatest. Was Yahweh the greatest or was Baal the greatest? Whichever one was the greatest, that one should be followed. And that, that battle, even though it was over 2,700 years ago, is just as relevant for you and I today. Because there's a battle some of you are, are facing in your heart right now. There are idols of the world that pull and tug at your heart for your affection, for your time, for your energy. And at the same time, you, you know, no, no, I should be worshiping God. He, he, he really deserves first place in my life, but I feel this tug from the world over here. And it's this constant battle. And it's a battle for, for your heart. Who is going to be first place in your life? See, it's a battle you and I are facing today. And so tonight we want to talk about total allegiance to God. What does it look like to have total allegiance to God? And I want to share four principles with you, the first two of which will tell us what total allegiance does not mean. And the last two will tell us what total allegiance does mean. We've been in a series on Elijah. We've been looking at several weeks how God has been preparing him for this moment tonight, Mount Carmel, for the showdown with Ahab and with the false prophets. So I hope you'll pay attention. I hope you'll prayerfully open God's word. First Kings chapter 18. Let's look at the life of Elijah. Now you remember last time we saw Elijah, he was in Zarephath. And as far as I know, that's where he still was. He was at Zarephath. And then chapter 18, verse one says, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So as, as we look at God's word, the first thing we wonder is, what, what, what do you mean after, after many days? Or in the third year of what? Well, in the third year of the drought. Remember, there was a drought going on. Elijah had appeared to King Ahab, and he told him, said, it's not gonna rain again except at my word. And I I wonder what Ahab would have thought at that moment. I wonder if he would have thought, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, Elijah, go back to Gilead and we'll see if it rains. But in fact, it had not rained. For two to three years, it had not rained in the winter. The rainy season had withheld its rain. And so it's dry, it's dusty, there's a famine, and all were facing it. And the reason God did that is God brought judgment upon Israel because Ahab, the king, had led the people into idolatry. They had replaced the worship of Yahweh with with the false god of Baal. We see this in 1 Kings 16, verse 33. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So this was God's judgment and discipline upon Israel. And so he withheld rain, and all were struggling, and all were suffering. The drought raged on and because Israel was an agricultural society, there was a famine, naturally. There was a famine in Phoenicia, just as we saw at Zarephath. The widow and her son were out of food, just about. So all were experiencing this because of God's judgment on the land. Yet in the meantime, Elijah obeyed God. Elijah was obedient at Cherith. He was obedient at Zarephath. And now God had a word for him. And he's going to send him to Ahab because God wants to bring, to bring rain on to Israel. And so that's where we find Elijah tonight. And the, really, the question here is how is Israel going to respond to Elijah? We saw how the ravens responded. The ravens earlier in, in chapter 17, they responded by feeding Elijah bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. At Zarephath, the widow responded. She fed Elijah. The, her dead son responded to Elijah's prayer and God's power through him. But how would Israel respond? He was going, he was back in his home territory now. Would these people respond with repentance and turn back to God? Or would they refuse and rebel and and remain in their idolatry? So that's the tension that that you sense and feel here. But God had a word for Elijah. He said, go show yourself to Ahab. Now in chapter 17, God had said, hide yourself. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Now God says, go show yourself. Elijah's been hiding, man. He's had a private ministry for two or three years now, but he's ready. He's prepared. He's obeyed God. He's done the hard work. And now God says, go show yourself to Ahab. You never know what is riding on your obedience. We have no idea what God may use a simple act of obedience in our life. Ahab or Elijah just immediately goes to meet Ahab. And just that simple act of obedience provides a fresh spiritual encounter for all of Israel. It, it's amazing. Just a simple act. God's, we're, not, we're not told here about Elijah's gifts or his abilities. We're just told that he obeyed God. And that, that's what God's looking for. In verse 3, I want to uh, point your attention to what the, the author here uh, points our attention to, Obadiah. And so uh, Elijah obeys. He goes to, to Ahab and it says, The famine was severe in Samaria. In verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord. Obadiah was King's, King Ahab's palace administrator, which mean he, means he oversaw his estates and his assets. So he that's a pretty important role in Ahab's uh, cabinet. Yet Ahab was, Obadiah was known for something else as well. You look at verse 4, it says, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah had a ministry of caring for the prophets of God. Even though he was in Ahab's cabinet, he greatly feared God. That term for fear refers to allegiance and obedience to God. He had complete obedience to God, even though outwardly he was showing obedience to Ahab. When Jezebel began persecuting the prophets, Obadiah went into action and hid in companies of 50 these prophets. It's interesting how God used ravens to feed Elijah, and God used Obadiah to feed the prophets. And God is meeting the needs of his people. But we see here in verse 5 what uh, the priorities were for these people. Ahab, his priority was animals. He told Obadiah, "'Go through the land to all the springs of water and to the valleys. Perhaps we, we may find grass and save the horses and mules.'" He's, he's interested in the horses and the mules. Obadiah is interested in people. He's interested in protecting the prophets of God so that the message of God can continue to be spread. But you see where Ahab's uh, priorities were. And so Obadiah is out on his official business and um, he runs into Elijah. Well, Elijah was on official business as well because he was obeying God. Verse seven, as, as, and as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Now, we're not told how Obadiah recognized Elijah. I don't know if because Elijah dressed a certain way or he, maybe the Gilead, people from Gilead spoke a certain dialect, but somehow he recognized Elijah. And he says, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? You know, Elijah, everybody's been looking for you and you just all of a sudden appeared. Is it you? Just almost in, in, in disbelief. And he answered him, it is I, Elijah said go tell your Lord. Now what's interesting, Obadiah says, my Lord Elijah, but Elijah says, go tell your Lord Ahab. Now some people see that and say, well, you know, uh, Obadiah was not as spiritual. He was not as devoted to God as Elijah was. And so that's why Elijah was saying that. But I, I don't believe that's what's happening here because two times here, once by the author, once by Obadiah, we're told that Obadiah, he feared God. So I, I believe Obadiah was, was, had a committed heart to God. He was just in a different place. He was in a country where the king was, the official religion was no longer to worship God. So he had to be careful, but he, he loved God. He greatly feared him. And so that, that was Obadiah. He, he feared God from his youth. And so Elijah wants Obadiah to go to the king. So go, go, go tell him I'm here. And Obadiah was, was scared for his life. He said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? You know, in other words, Ahab has been, my king's been looking everywhere for you. And no one's been able to find you. And all of a sudden, I'm going to go and tell him that you're here. And then the spirit of God is just going to pick you up and take you somewhere else. And, and you're, then you're not going to be here and he's going to kill me. So, you know, Elijah, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm scared to, to do that. Because I, what if you leave? What if you're not here? So that, that's, what, that's what he's concerned about. And so Obadiah, again, uh, repeats what the author had already told us. In verse 13, he says, has it not been told, my Lord, what, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? He goes on to tell him, and I've hid the prophets. And, and I, he, was, he was faithfully serving God. And then in verse 15, we see Elijah's theology here. Elijah said, as a Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Now, the Lord of hosts, theologically, it's a name for God that meant that Yahweh stands as the rulers of heavenly powers. And those heavenly powers stand ready to act at God's command. So he's saying, Hey, I worship a God who has heavenly angels at his, at his right hand, who will jump into action at any moment at his word. Why should I fear standing before a king when I serve that type of a God, the Lord of hosts? So we see his high view of God here. But then we also see his precision to obey. And he says, I'm going to surely show myself to him, to Ahab today. Now that word, show yourself, just means to appear or show myself. It's the same word God told him earlier in the chapter. Go show yourself. Go appear before Ahab. And Elijah said, today, that's what I'm going to do. So you see his high view of God. You see his commitment to precise obedience. He's going to obey God no matter what. And so that's the setting here. And so this brings us to the first point in our study tonight. I want to share four points with you. The first two are what uh, total allegiance does not mean, okay? And the last two are what total allegiance to God does mean. So the first one is this. Total allegiance to God does not mean that all of us are identical. Total allegiance to God does not mean that all of us are identical. Elijah and Obadiah were not identical. They lived in different places. Yet Obadiah feared God, and he had a secular job working in the government. Elijah feared God and he was a prophet that had been living outside of Israel for a period of time. One source wrote this. Elijah seems bold, confrontational, intrusive, while Obadiah appears hesitant, cautious, and fearful. But both were essential to what God was doing in that day. Listen to this. The same word for fed the prophets with bread and water in 1 Kings eighteen four. that same word is used in chapter 17 for the raven's and for the widow. The ravens fed Elijah. The widow, God said, I'm going to feed you through a widow. That same word. So the point is just as the ravens and the widow were essential in Elijah's life, Obadiah was essential in the prophet's life in Israel. Both men had a ministry. It just looked different. They they, they weren't the same. They had different gifts. They had different personalities. So Elijah didn't need to look down on Obadiah as somehow having a second class ministry. Obadiah didn't need to compare himself to Elijah as if he's inferior to him. Both were effective. They just looked different. So you and I don't have to be like someone else to be effective. We just need to be comfortable with who we are and appreciate the gifts that God's given us and then use them for his glory and celebrate that, hey, God's given me gifts or God's not given me certain gifts. And I just want to use them for his glory. I love the, uh, this story. In his book entitled No Excuses, uh, Coach Bob Stoops, longtime head football coach at Oklahoma, uh, he coaches some other places as well as an as assistant coach. But he tells his story about when he worked for Coach Steve Spurrier at the University of Florida. Now, prior to Florida, he was at uh, Kansas State. He worked for Coach uh, Bill Snyder, a legend, uh, great reputation, a man who uh, really is known for working hard, putting in a, a number of hours. And so uh, in 1995, Florida had a really good team. They played Nebraska in the national championship and got beat pretty bad, 62 to 24. And so uh, Florida wanted to get, get uh, tougher in the offseason, get a, a more effective defense, so they hired Bob Stoops. So Bob Stoops comes in to run their defense, and Stoops tells this story about how Spurrier had a different philosophy. And so early in the season, 1996, Florida was supposed to play Tennessee. And uh, right before they played Tennessee, they had a bye week. And so they had an extra week to prepare. Now, this is what, um, this is what uh, Coach Stoops said. Um, now, at the time, Tennessee was ranked number two. Florida was ranked four. So top five matchup in Knoxville, uh, uh, Peyton Manning. Tennessee had just increased their stadium. Over 100,000 people, national television. I mean, this was the moment. And this is what Coach Stoops said. If it had been Coach Snyder, we would have worked the entire bye week, including the weekend. But Coach Spurrier had a different way of dealing with those situations. This was going to be my first big game at Florida, so I wanted to have everything buttoned up early. If that meant grinding through the bye week, I was fine with that. But Coach Spurrier had other plans. He said we were going to the beach. Sure enough, we headed to Crescent Beach for a bye week break instead of using every waking minute of extra time preparing for Manning in Tennessee, I was floating in the Atlantic with Coach Spurrier. Bobby, you think Phil Fulmer is in the ocean today? And Bob Stoots replied, no coach, I believe he isn't. Uh, I'm having a hard time believing I am. You see, each coach, both coaches were effective, but they just had a different way of approaching things. And that's how it is in the, in the Christian life. And by the way, the first 20 minutes of the game, Florida was winning 35 to nothing. They went up there loose. They were, they were confident and they ended up winning the game and and they moved on to number one in the country. You see, God has gifted us in different ways. There's different approaches in ministry. And so some of you, you, some of you are gifted with students and, and I assure you that is a gift. And so use that gift and others of you are gifted in, in quietly serving you're generous with your time, you're generous with your finances, uh, and, and you, you, you stay behind the scenes. We, 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 need, we need all of those people. We, we need your different gifts here. And so use the gifts that God's given you. Elijah, Obadiah, they were different, but they were essential. Well, Elijah and Ahab finally met again. It had been almost three years, somewhere around three years, and now they meet again. And you see in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You know, not, hey, Elijah, how are you doing? How's it been the last few years? But is it you, you troubler of Israel? Troubler is the the noun form of a Hebrew verb that means to bring to calamity, to, 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 to trouble. And there are times where this word means a viper or a snake. So he's saying, is that you, Elijah, you snake? Ahab couldn't stand Elijah. After all, this, this famine had affected Ahab's whole nation. And so now he, he's blaming. There's the person to blame for it right there. Is it you? It's, it's because of you that we've experienced all this drought and famine. And Elijah says, hey, actually the real problem's you, because you have led this nation into idolatry. So, you know, you need to examine yourself here. And, and, and he says, he, he talks about the Baals. Is, is it not you? You followed the Baals? The Baals is plural here because they were different local manifestations of the f- false God Baal. And so uh, Elijah says, verse 19 Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He was calling Israel back to worship God. They were going to meet at Mount Carmel. Now, whether this was every single person in Israel or it was just a representation of Israel, which I think that's probably what it was. Either way, that was a lot of people. And Elijah was way outnumbered. Just with the prophets alone, he would have been outnumbered 850 to 1. He says, I want you to meet at Mount Carmel. Now, why would he say Mount Carmel? There's two reasons. One is geographical and one is theological. But first, Mount Carmel, it means garden land. It was famous for its fertility. It was about a stretch of 11 miles of hills and small mountains from the Mediterranean coast that ran southeast into Israel. It was, it was limestone. There were about 2,000 caves in, in Mount Carmel. Geographically, it was located between Phoenicia in the north and, and Israel. So it was about halfway between the two there. So it was a, it was a strategic place. It was viewed as neutral territory between Yahweh, which was, which was supposed to be Israel's God, and Baal, which was Phoenicia's God. The, uh, the highest point of, of Mount Carmel was 1,720 feet. So it was not a, not a huge mountain range, but nonetheless, that's where they were going to go. Theologically, the Phoenicians saw Mount Carmel as, as sacred and belonging to Baal. This was Baal's backyard. This was the place where there were frequent storms, and Baal was the storm god, and he was also seen as a sun god. And so they thought, well, because there's thunder, because there's lightning, because there's storms here, this is Baal's territory. This is where he manifests his power. And so it, this was Baal. Baal had the home field advantage. And so Elijah has given Baal every single advantage here to prove once God shows his power, there would be no doubt who was the supreme God. And so that's what, that's what he was doing. Now he said the 400 prophets of Asherah, we've talked about Baal a little bit, but who is Asherah? Asherah was the mother goddess in Canaanite religion. She was married to El, who was the head of the gods. And the symbol of Asherah was often an evergreen tree or a wooden pole, So sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll read about the Asherah poles. These poles represented this female false deity. So that's that's who that was. But these people, these false prophets had royal sanction. They were protected by the state. They ate at Jezebel's table. So Ahab agreed to this request in verse 20. Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets there together at Mount Mount Carmel. And... Elijah steps up. Now, it's interesting, from this point on, Ahab really disappears from the scene. Now, I believe he's obviously there, but Elijah takes center stage, and the, these false prophets take center stage. So Elijah had a question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Verse 21. That, that, that's his question. Limping here is an expression that refers to indecision rather than physical disability. It can, it can refer to going to a fork in the road and not being sure which way to go. So I think I'll just stay in the middle. I don't know if I should go this way. I don't know if I should go this way. And in English, we would say, stop riding the fence. Make a decision. And, and that's, what, that's what Elijah's saying. He's saying, hey, if, if, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But you can't stay in the middle. You can't just keep going back and forth. And, well, I'm going to think about it some more. Uh, follow means to go after If if Yahweh is God, man, you gotta go after him. You gotta pursue him. It's time to decide. It's time to commit. Indecision will no longer be tolerated, is what he's saying. Now, have you ever wondered what made this false God, Baal, so attractive? What what was it about this false religion that was so attractive? One, it had a royal endorsement. I mean, Ahab endorsed it, his wife Jezebel endorsed it, they were the leaders of the country. Uh, as as one source said, power tends to be persuasive. They had the power, they had the voice, they had the authority. So Israel was influenced by their leaders. Second, Baal was a storm god, and because they were an agricultural society, they depended on rain. And so, Baal worship of Baal was seen as very practical. They thought, hey, I can worship I can worship Yahweh on Saturday and the you know or Sunday whenever and and um, but during the week, we, we, we need Baal because we need rain. And it's just very practical. And so th- that, was, that was attractive to them. And then third, Canaanite idolatry had tradition on its side. You see, the, these, this false system of worship had been there for years, even before Israel came into the promised land. So for generation upon generation upon generation had been influenced by this false system of worship. So it was, it was well-established. It was very persuasive. It'd be, very, it'd be the same way as if your grandfather, your grandparent was a so-and-so, you know, whether they were Catholic or Baptist, Methodist, whatever, whatever they were, then all of a sudden that has an impact on your life. And it just keeps going generation to generation. There was tradition. Now, idolatry in our day can be just as persuasive. I don't think, no one's going around talking about worship, worship in Baal or Asherah, but there are idols there's the idols of food and entertainment, success, career, money, sex, all of these idols that just tug at our hearts and, and, and they want our attention. They want our affections. And what we often do is we think, well, I'll just throw some Jesus into the midst of that and I'll just worship Jesus on Sunday or I'll have a quiet time every now and then. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to entertain these other gods. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship uh, some of them as well. And I'm going to worship Jesus too. You remember the first commandment? God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember that? Exodus 20, verse 3. This is what Israel had broken the first commandment. They're trying to worship Yahweh. They're trying to worship Baal and Asherah, and they're indecisive. And Elijah's coming to say, gosh, you've broken the first commandment. God says you shall have no other gods before him. And it was Martin Luther who said, where the heart is rightly set toward God and this commandment, talking about the first commandment, is observed, all the other commandments follow. That is, if, if, if I have a problem stealing, then I have an idolatry problem. The problem is really not stealing. The problem is really I'm worshiping someone or something else. And, and it, the, the manifestation is, is in one of the other commandments down the line. In his book, God's at War, Kyle Eidelman wrote this. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all others come from. So if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with, eventually you'll find that underneath it is a false god. Until that god is dethroned and the Lord God takes his rightful place, you will not have victory. You see, it's a worship issue. Israel was worshiping little here, little there. They weren't completely worshiping Yahweh. That was the problem. But notice how they responded to Elijah and the people, Elijah asked his question. And then it says at the end of verse 21, and the people did not answer him a word. It was silence, uncertainty, indecision, not, not ready to make a commitment. One source said this uncertainty will never lead you to deep intimacy. Maybe they were like the people in Athens. Remember when Paul visited Athens in Acts 17, he talked about the resurrection of the dead. And after it says, after hearing of the resurrection of the dead, some, some said, we will hear you again about this. In other words, I'm not ready to make a decision. Uh, Maybe I'll just listen to you next week. I'll put it off because I'm not ready to decide. There's There's uncertainty and Elijah's coming to bring an end to uncertainty. They're saying, guys, you can't be indecisive anymore. You've got to decide which way you're going to go. Here's our second point tonight. Total allegiance to God does not allow uncertainty. Total allegiance to God does not allow uncertainty. Elijah was pushing pushing the people to decide. He sought to turn the people back to God. Maybe some of you, you've been considering Christianity for a long time. You've been listening and listening and listening. And my friend, if that's you, I want to plead with you to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And I want to just encourage you to do that. And I know there's a place for researching and there's a place to make sure. I want to count the cost. But at some point, you've got to decide. I want to encourage you to to do that. If God's allowing you to hear this message, he softened your heart. Man, today is the day of salvation. Don't don't put it off another day or another week. You may not have another week. And so receive him today as your Lord and Savior. Do it. Don't don't put it off. Um, There's no time for uncertainty. And um, Elijah was telling them, God wants your total allegiance. Hey, let me ask you a question. When someone looks at your life, do they see total allegiance to Jesus Christ, or do they see uncertainty? Do they, do they know without a shadow of a doubt, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, man, that person is committed to Jesus Christ? Or is there uncertainty? Like, well, I, I'm just not really sure where they stand. Uh, I mean, they, they, they're pretty moral uh, outwardly, but I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't ever hear them talk about Jesus. I don't really ever see You know, I don't ever see him pray. I I don't really know. Do do people know when they look at your life? Uh, Charles Meisner is a scientist and specialist in general relativity. Listen to what he wrote about the attitude of Albert Einstein toward organized religion. He said, I do see the design of the universe has essentially a religious question that is one Uh, That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein has so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as basically a very religious man. He must have looked at what their preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. Wow. When someone runs across your path, do they look at your life and think, man, that person right there is a follower of Jesus. That person, they must serve an incredible God because, man, their life, man, I just see something totally different in them. There needs to be commitment in our life. And that's what Elijah was pushing them, them toward. So now it's time for the, the, the showdown. In verses uh, 22 to, to 29 here, he says, Elijah clearly explained the rules of the contest. Two bulls would be given, one for the false prophets, one for him. They're going to they're gonna prepare, put, put the bull on the altar. And, and he said, the God who answers by fire, that one is the true God. That's going to be the determining factor. Whichever God, you call to your God, I'll call to my God. Whichever one answers by fire, that one is the true God. And so they, they agreed. It is well spoken, they said. And, and the, the background here comes from Leviticus 9, where um, fire fell from heaven and consumed the altar, or the, the sacrifice, rather, the offering. And in that story, the people saw it and they shouted, they fell on their face. And so it, Elijah even lets them go first. He's given them every possible advantage. And so the, the, they, they go first. They began calling on Baal. And the best I can tell, we're not told exactly what time, but probably 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, they started calling on Baal. Oh, Bell, answer us. They said from morning till noon. But there was no voice. No one answered. They were dancing around in a circular motion around the altar. They were had their heads down. Some of them had their hair was dragging in the mud. They're just going around in circles. Oh, bell, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, so this has gone on now for two or three hours. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Uh, either he is musing or he's relieving himself. He's, he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep you know, you need to get louder. And, and, and false gods were seen as they participated in the same activity as humans. So that's why he's saying this. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey somewhere. You need to, you need to turn it up a notch and maybe he'll, he'll hear you and he'll respond. He's mocking them. He's, he's being sarcastic and, and, and and nothing. And they cried aloud and cut themselves. So they're going around in these circles and they're, perspiring and there's blood now this, this dripping down themselves and still nothing. And they cried aloud and cut themselves. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which is 3 PM. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's a sadness there. There's an emphasis there to think all this sincerity, all this passion, all this energy and nothing, no response. How sad. This brings us to our third point tonight. Total allegiance to God means that we have rejected the emptiness of idolatry. Total allegiance to God means that we have rejected the emptiness of idolatry. Elijah saw the emptiness there and he ridiculed it and there was, no, there was no response. In 1985, Jim Carrey wrote himself a $10 million check for acting services rendered and he dated it 10 years in the future. And he took that check and he put it in his wallet. And for 10 years, he carried that check in his wallet. And finally, in 1995... He found out he was going to uh, be a, a play a star role in Dumb and Dumber, and he was going to make ten million dollars. That's pretty. That's pretty interesting. Although this is what Jim Carrey has said about being rich and famous, because he didn't find any fulfillment in probably what he thought would provide provide fulfillment. This is what he said: "I think everybody should get rich and famous." And do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's not the answer. And when we look to the false idols of the world, there's no answer. That's Elijah has just sat back for five or six hours now. And yes, he stepped in at noon, but he is sitting back. He watched all this circus for hours and there's no answer. There's no response that's the idols of the world that we give our affections to and, and our time. And we think, oh, they're going to deliver. I'm going to feel so good. I'm going to be so important. They're going to think so highly of me. And then there's no answer. It's not what we thought. There's, there's no response. It's, it's, it's emptiness. Well, there's one final point I want you to see. We'll go verses 30 through 40. Now this, this, is, uh, this is Elijah's turn. Uh, Elijah's let them go first for hours now. He just sat back and watched. Verse thirty. Then Elijah said to all the people, "Come near to me." It's like he's huddling the people up. Like, okay, guys, I've I've seen enough of this nonsense. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. That's the first thing he did. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He he repaired it the way Moses did. Back in Exodus 24, verse 4. During this time of idolatry, the altar of the Lord had been broken down on Mount Carmel. So first thing he does, he doesn't, he's not there to fuss at them. He's not there to patronize them. He's there to evangelize them. He's there to call these people back to worship Yahweh. And so he builds an altar. He's like, guys, uh, let's, if we're going to worship God, we've got to have an altar. So he builds an altar, and he takes 12 stones, it says. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Now, isn't that interesting? Because earlier in this book, 1 Kings, we learn that the nation of Israel had been divided to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But Elijah here is not paying any attention to that. And what he's teaching us, he's not recognizing the division. The point here is that there is one God and that there's one people of God. There is one God to be worshiped, and everyone who believes in him, and what we would say today, everyone who receives him, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, is a child of God. We call that the universal church. It's only it's, it's, it's us humans who make all these distinctions. Like, well, that's a white church, or that's a black church, that's a Hispanic church, that's an Asian church. Those are all human distinctions. From God's perspective, there is one people who have received him as their Lord and Savior. And then there's all those who have not. And so, as children of God, it doesn't matter what your color, your background. That none of that matters. What matters have you? You are a child of God, created in the image of God. But have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And so he he, he's not interested in this nation and that nation. He just says, "Hey, there's there's twelve stones here. There's one people of God." And so he 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 sets up the altar. He puts the wood in order. He cuts the bull. He gets everything ready. And then he says. Fill four jars with water. Now remember, there'd been a drought. They were close to the Mediterranean Sea and there were springs there at Mount Carmel. So there was water nearby. But why would you put water on wood if you want it to burn? It sounds like you're sabotaging yourself. Now now you've got wet, soggy wood, but somehow you're expecting it to burn. So once again, Elijah is is setting up this stage for a miracle. That way when fire does come, the only response will be just, okay, God did that. Man had nothing to do with that. That's what's happening here. So Elijah says, do it a second time. Then he said, do it a, do it a third time. So there's all this water. Now the whole trench is filled with water. And uh, at 3 p.m., Elijah comes now, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the Oblation, it was 3 p.m., Elijah the prophet came near and said, he comes to pray. He's not fussing at the people. He's not going to preach him a sermon. He just comes to pray. Oh Lord, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. God, reveal yourself to these people that you are the living God, and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know, O God, O Lord. Uh, that you, O oh Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. Now, I said that, I timed that prayer and said it less than 20 seconds this week. Less than a 20 second prayer is all Elijah needed. He didn't, he didn't need a flashy 30 minute prayer. We don't have to have long worship services awfully, it's just, or, or often, it's just a, a sincere heart that believes in God, that's calling out to Him that's what God's looking for. And, 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 and that's, that's what happened here. This, this was, Elijah was extending an invitation saying, God, turn these hearts of these people back to you. That verb for turn is in the causative stem saying, God calls the hearts of these people to turn back to you. Once these people were your, your people years ago, they followed you, they worshiped you, but now they've gone astray. And he's saying, God, caused their hearts to turn back to you. It means to turn their hearts from apostasy. God, turn their hearts, Lord. He prayed for a spiritual awakening. He's praying for revival. And that's what happened. Notice how God responded. He said that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, meaning fire was a symbol that God accepted his prayer he accepted the sacrifice. When all the people saw it, verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Remember, the wood was wet. This was Baal's territory. Everything was stacked against Yahweh. But somehow, Elijah prays a short prayer, and boom, fire falls down from heaven, and these people just fall on their face. I think, okay, okay, Yahweh is God. Yahweh, He is God. He is a true God. He's the winner of this showdown it's, it's crystal clear. Baal had hours and he never answered, even though he was the God of thunder and storms and lightning. He never answered, and all of a sudden a quick prayer in faith and boom, fire comes down from heaven. They realized they were wrong. they realized that, oh, Yahweh is God. So verse. 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal let no, not one of them escape. This goes back to Exodus 22, 20. Well, they were, uh, they're acting in accordance with the Mosaic law. In other words, this was proof of their repentance. They were on their face before God. And then they acted on their faith and took care of the false prophets of Baal. It demonstrated that they had had a heart change. Our final point is this, total allegiance to God means that he has all of our hearts. Total allegiance to God means that he has all of our hearts. God has full access to us. He is on the throne of our hearts. Does God have all of your heart tonight? I mean, not just part of it, not just part of it along with a bunch of other things. Does he have all of your heart tonight? Is he on the throne of your heart has there been a time where you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and received him as Lord and Savior? Maybe, maybe you've, you say, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I did that years ago. And I, I'm grateful that you did. But is he on the throne of your life now? Or is that just something you did years ago? Are you living in a daily, passionate, walk, relationship with Jesus Christ where you get up and say, Lord, this is your day. Fill me with the Spirit of God Take over this day. I am yours today, Lord. This is your day. I rejoice. I'm glad in it. Have your way today. This is your life. Do some of you, do you pray for for your family and your neighborhood and your city and the world the way Elijah did? Do, do you intercede and say, God, turn. Cause their hearts to turn back to you. Do you, do you intercede for people like that? For all the All the, the unreached peoples uh, in the, in the world? Do you, do you intercede for them and say, God, allow them to hear the gospel, cause their hearts to turn back to you. He's interceding instead of fussing at them and saying, you've done all this wrong. And you've been in idolatry. Ahab had been King over 20 years at this point. They had been in idolatry for decades. Instead of fussing, he prayed, he prayed for them. And that's what, that's what the church needs to be doing to be interceding and saying, God cause the hearts of people to turn back to you. That's, that's what God's looking for is, is, is there a church that's going to do that? Well, over 800 years after Mount Carmel, there was another showdown. This showdown was not on Mount Carmel. It was on Mount Calvary. And about the same amount of time that Elijah was there at Mount Carmel for about nine to 3 PM, 9 AM to 3 PM, the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross there to pay for the sins of the world. And he didn't dance around. He didn't make a lot of noise. He was there like a lamb led to the slaughter to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. And the payment was made in full. At the very end, he said, it is finished. And he laid down his life. That's what Jesus did for you. And that's what Jesus did for me. And we can receive him and have him as our Lord and Savior. And not only just get to spend eternity, eternity with him one day, but have him as our Lord right now. He's Lord of our life right now. It is amazing the difference that one man can make. One man, Elijah, what a difference, called a whole nation to repentance. And they fell on their face and worshiped and repented. Most of them did. Wow. There was another man who made a difference. His name was Eddie Futch. Eddie was born in Mississippi, he grew up in Detroit. He was an amateur boxer, very good amateur boxer, by the way. His record was 37 and three. In 1936, he was getting ready to turn professional, but a doctor discovered he had a heart murmur. So he had to, he had to retire. And so he stayed in the sport of boxing and became a trainer and became a very good one. Um, his first uh, champion was Don Jordan in 1958. In 1973, Eddie became the head trainer of Joe Frazier. And so that day in October the 1st, 1975, when Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier were there in Manila, Eddie Futch was there in the corner coaching, coaching Joe Frazier on how to beat Muhammad Ali. Man, the fight was all that was advertised. It was designed to be 15 rounds, and they went toe-to-toe, back and forth, both of them landing punches, you know, Ali never could knock Frazier down, never could seem to intimidate him. But that day, both men landed a lot of punches. And as the fight wore on, um, uh, one of Frazier's eyes was, was, was closed. He couldn't see out of it. And so it had been 14 rounds. There was one round left, three minutes. All, all that was left, three minutes. But Eddie looked at Joe Frazier and he, and he he said, I, "I'm not letting you go back out there. Um, it's it, it's over." And 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 Frazier contested and said, "No, no, no, boss, boss, I want him." And 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 Fitch just put his foot down, so I, he said he was stopping the fight. And because the trainer was thinking about what was best for him, for his for his fighter, and he wanted to do the humane thing, not the easy thing. Uh, he, he can't even see hardly, and and he didn't want him to get hurt. And so Foots replied, sit down, son, it's all over. No one will ever forget what you did here tonight. And it's interesting that really no one has forgotten what Eddie did that night. You see, 25,000 people in an arena, one billion people watching on television, and one man determined the outcome of that fight. One man stopped that fight, just like that. It's amazing what one person can do. God used one person to turn a nation back to himself. And God will use your life as well to do more than you can ask or even imagine if you will surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Will you do that tonight? I hope you will. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace in allowing us to read and study your word tonight. I thank you that, You are working in someone's life right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that someone right now would receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they've been putting it off, but I pray today, Father, right now would be the day of salvation. And Father, for those who have already made that decision, I pray that Jesus would be Lord of their life and Jesus would be Lord of my life. Father, we surrender ourselves to you. Would you have mercy? on us. Forgive us when we chase the idols of this world. Give us a deeper love for you. Have the supremacy first place in our lives, in our hearts. We ask, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friend, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Join us Sunday as Pastor continues his amazing series in the book of Job. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.